Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 117, Should I Not Spare Nineveh? Hello, I'm so glad you're here. All right, today, long awaited day, we get to talk about Jonah. And I have been waiting to talk about Jonah, and as I was thinking about what to talk about and what to say, I had a hard time moving away from a little section in one of my favorite books. So that's what we're going to do. I am going to read you a small section of one of my favorite books. It's called The Peace Giver by James L. Farrell. Now I'm going to give you two sets of context really quick. One, we're talking about Jonah. Jonah was commanded of the Lord to go preach to Nineveh and Jonah didn't want to. And we'll learn in the book why. So I won't go into that. In the book, it is the story of a man who has a marriage that is falling apart. And he has all kinds of feelings about whose fault it is that the marriage is falling apart and all the things that he's doing right and all the things that his wife is doing wrong. And in the book, his grandfather visits him in vision. His grandfather died a while back and is teaching him through visiting different scriptures, different scripture stories, and teaching him about the atonement of Jesus Christ through those stories. We begin with Rick, the main character of the story, and his grandfather in vision, visiting the ship that Jonah is on. The ship is in great peril, there's a great storm, and everyone is afraid for their lives. Tell us who you are, O stranger, implored the captain, once he picked himself up. And for what cause is this evil upon us? The man remained silent for a few moments. I am a despicable man, he said finally, his sullen voice laden with despair. My name is Jonah, son of Amittai, and the lot has been well cast. I have offended the God of heaven and earth. Jonah, of course Jonah, Rick thought to himself. What do you mean? the captain asked earnestly. What have you done? Agitation replaced some of the despair, but none of the pain on Jonah's face. The Lord commanded me to go to the Assyrians in Nineveh to cry warning unto them, but I would not, for they are barbarians in heart and mind. At this he cast a worried glance around the hold. Satisfied that there were no Assyrians in the group, he continued, So I ran from the Lord and from his command, and this is the cause of our calamity. The God of heaven and earth is wroth. Pray tell me where you come from, asked the captain. What is your country and from what people are you? Who is this God that you worship? I am Hebrew and fear Jehovah, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, and it is he who is angry. His arm will not be stayed. At this, Jonah buried his face into his hands. I have offended the Lord, and this is my recompense. I am condemned to die. The boat suddenly plunged forward, sending Rick's stomach into his throat. The men, none of them restrained in harnesses, flew into a mass against the forward walls. The sea then bucked the ship over to its back, and a pure bedlam broke out in the hold. The glass coverings that had been protecting candles that hung on the wall shattered, and all light was extinguished. At that same moment, the crates from the back portion of the hold burst from their restraints, crashed down to the ceiling of the ship which was for a moment the floor, and began to hurtle violently in all directions of the ship tossed in the waves. It was two or three minutes before the ship miraculously righted itself once again, but the waters in the hold was then almost knee-deep. The captain yelled out, O oh Hebrew, what must we do to calm the waters? Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, he answered. Then shall the sea be calmed. 
for it is for my sake that this great tempest is upon you. The captain looked at him warily. We will not add to our troubles with your blood. Oarsmen, back to your posts, he bellowed. Bring us round to land. The bare-chested men climbed a rope to the hatches in the ceiling and pushed them open, exposing for a moment the compartments below the deck, and on each side of the hold where a few men could add the power of the oars to the sail that normally propelled them. But it was no use. The storm was too strong and the manpower too weak. And without a tiller on deck, it would have been difficult to guide the ship, even under normal conditions. All the while, Jonah kept imploring for them to cast him out to the sea. Finally, when the futility of the quest was plain, the captain and his men turned to Jonah. We are left without a choice, O stranger. We will do as you say, but we beseech thee, O God of the Hebrews, the captain said, lifting his voice and his arms heavenward to the hold, his gray figure only faintly visible in the darkness. We beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. At this, one of the men swiftly climbed the ladder to the deck and released the lock on the hatch, then scaled down the ladder and made way for Jonah. Jonah hesitated, but a swift jolt of the boat and a prodding from the captain moved him up the ladder. Two of the men followed him, secured by ropes. Twenty seconds or so later, the two of them dove back down the hatch, fastening the latch once again before dropping into the hold. Jonah had been cast into the sea. Exhausted and amazed by what he had just witnessed, Rick was even more confused than ever as to why he was there. What is this about, Grandpa? he asked again. What is the point? What do you want me to learn? Do you know the rest of Jonah's story, Ricky? Sure, he gets swallowed up by a big fish, and after three days the fish spits him out onto dry land, and then he goes to Nineveh and preaches after all, and the people repent and are preserved. I get it, I know the story, but I don't get what it has to do with me. That's why we're here, Ricky, so you will see. The winds and the waves have suddenly calmed, and the men ascended the ladder en masse. Rick and his grandfather followed them up. Once on deck, they surveyed the scene. The mast had been snapped off, only a foot or two above the deck, and the sail lost to the sea. Except for a few lonely pieces, the wicker fence had been almost entirely ripped away. But the twilight sky above was clear, and the water lay still as glass. The men dropped to their knees and offered prayers of thanksgiving. Rick followed his grandfather to the bow and looked out across the now tranquil Mediterranean. Do you suppose that you've ever fled to Tarshish, Ricky? His grandfather asked after a minute or two. Run from the Lord, you mean? No, I don't think so. No, Grandpa asked, raising his eyebrows in Rick's direction. Let's think about what it means to flee to Tarshish. Great, here we go again, thought Rick. More Socrates. <laughs> yes, I suppose so, my boy, Grandfather said with a brief chuckle. Let's think about what we have just witnessed. Why did Jonah flee to Tarshish? For the reason I just said, to run from the Lord. That's what he was doing, fair enough, Ricky. But why? Why was he running from the Lord? Because he didn't want to go to Nineveh, I suppose. Yes, but why? I don't know, Grandpa. I guess he just didn't want to go. Maybe he didn't like them. You're right on both counts, Grandpa responded, ignoring Rick's agitation. He didn't want to go. He didn't like the Ninevites. And the reason he didn't is because of what they had done to his people and what they were yet to do. What do you mean? In Jonah's day, Nineveh was a major city within the Assyrian Empire, soon to become its capital. 
The Assyrians were a brutal, warmongering people feared by all around them, including, I might add, the Phoenicians, like the sailors on the ship, who were required to pay tribute to Assyria in order to maintain their sovereignty. By this time in history, the Assyrian Empire included almost all of present-day Iraq and Syria, and much of present-day Jordan and Turkey. For a time, they even controlled Egypt. The Assyrians had been raiding the borders of the northern kingdom of Israel for years, collecting tribute from them as well. And Jonah knew from the words of fellow prophets that the Assyrians would soon destroy the northern kingdom and lead his people into captivity, which happened in about 721 BC. Grandpa paused for a moment, looking out to sea. So how could Jonah work to save them? He finally asked. Why would the Lord even ask him to? That is what Jonah was stumbling over, Ricky. In his mind, Nineveh didn't deserve to be saved. And he, one of the aggrieved and mistreated, didn't deserve to be required to help them. Rick remembered his grandfather's earlier comment about Rick feeling he deserved better from Carol. So you think I'm like Jonah, then? Is that it, Grandpa? You're saying I'm upset because I think I deserve better than what I'm getting, and in that respect I'm like Jonah? His grandfather didn't say anything. Well, maybe I am then. But you know what? I can't blame Jonah to tell you the truth. Now that I know what he was facing, who could blame him for not wanting to go to Nineveh, for not wanting to help the very people who soon would wipe out his own people without a second thought? So maybe I am like Jonah. That doesn't seem so bad to me under the circumstances. It beats being Nineveh, I'd say. Actually, Ricky, that's who you are. Who? Nineveh. I'm Nineveh? Yes. And so, by the way, is Jonah. That's why we're here. And why Jonah is somewhere in there, he said, nodding toward the sea. How could Jonah be Nineveh? Rick objected, thinking as well of himself. He's not a conqueror. He doesn't make others' lives miserable. He's nothing like Nineveh. He's a prophet, for heaven's sake. Actually, Ricky, he's exactly like Nineveh, in the only way that really matters. How so? Remember, Jonah feels that Nineveh doesn't deserve to be saved. That's why he's running. But guess who else doesn't deserve to be saved? Grandpa Carson's question hung heavy in the salty air. You're saying that Jonah doesn't deserve to be saved either? Rick finally responded. His voice trailed off in the thought. Exactly. If Jonah demands that everybody gets only what they deserve, then he must also accept what he deserves. And that, Ricky, he said, turning his eyes back to the sea, is what he is now getting. Grandpa fell silent and Rick became lost in his thoughts. But what about Carol and how she treats me, he bellowed within himself. Without charity, ye are nothing. That's what the scriptures say. And Carol is almost devoid of charity. She shouldn't be like that. I deserve better. Isn't that right? Rick was confused. Isn't that right? Actually, you're both right and wrong, his grandfather interrupted, stepping again into Rick's thoughts. It is true that we are commanded to love and honor others. And it is likely true that Carol fails always to do that, just as you and I fail. But what's false is the idea that you or I deserve that love and that devotion, that somehow we are entitled to it. The truth is that there is only one thing we truly deserve, and that's to be sent to hell. You, Carol, me, Jonah, Nineveh, all of us. Love and salvation are gifts. How grateful we should be to receive them in any measure. 
At that, Grandpa Carson looked out again across the sea. Hell is all we could ever hope for, Ricky, if it weren't for the redeeming power of the Savior's atonement. It is only His love, offered not because we deserve it, but even though we do not, that saves us. We don't want what we deserve, believe me. Jonah is finding that out right now. Our only hope is to receive what we don't deserve, the mercy that brings the gift of eternal life. And Jonah is about to learn that as well. So am I wrong to think that Carol is wronging me? Is that what this means? Rick argued within himself. There's something I don't understand, Grandpa, he objected. I understand that without the Savior, we are all equally lost. You, me, Carol, Jonah, Nineveh. I understand that. But the fact is that we're not without the Savior. And His atonement requires our righteousness. We are saved by grace after all we can do, right? So doesn't it matter, in Jonah's case, for example, that he is more righteous than the Ninevites, notwithstanding this ill-fated run to Tarshish? Doesn't that mean something? Yes, it does mean something, Ricky, but not what you think it does. You didn't use to speak in riddles, Grandpa, Rick chided. Grandpa Carson's laugh cleared the tension Rick was beginning to feel. He turned to face Rick. I'm sorry, my boy. I'm not trying to confuse you. Let me put it this way. Whether or not Nineveh is righteous is critical, of course, but only for Nineveh. It has nothing to do with Jonah. And if he thinks it does, if he thinks that he is more deserving because he is somehow better than Nineveh, then he in that moment becomes more Ninevitish than the people he is blaming. But what if the Ninevites really are bad, Rick asked, thinking of his marriage. What if Jonah really is better than they are? What if he is really more righteous? Why would it be a problem for Jonah to just acknowledge the truth? Because he wouldn't be acknowledging the truth, Ricky. That's just the point. If he really is more righteous than they are, it will not occur to him to think that he is more righteous than they are because he will understand fully and deeply that he is entitled to nothing but hell. At least in one sense, righteousness is simply a humble understanding of how unrighteous one is coupled with a deep commitment to be better. The truth leaves no room for feelings of superiority. Such feelings are nothing but lying vanities. These words settled on Rick with such force that he gave up his project of reloading arguments. He hadn't realized until that moment that his main object so far with his grandfather had been to be right, and that he had made most of their time together into a kind of verbal jousting match. Something about this last comment, or perhaps the way his grandfather had said it, Rick wasn't sure, changed everything. He felt his toes relax. He settled into his feet. The tension evaporated from his face and neck, and he turned out to look at the sea with his grandfather. You see, Ricky, relative righteousness means nothing. Whether Jonah was better or worse than Nineveh isn't the question at all, is it? And whether you are better or worse than Carol isn't the question either. Some laborers work longer, the Savior told us in one of his parables, and others shorter. Each person's payment at the end of the day has nothing whatsoever to do with the work of others. We are each working out our own salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord, and that gift will come to us only if we know in our hearts that we deserve it no more than anyone else. What I meant earlier by fleeing to Tarshish was just this persisting in the idea that we are better, more righteous, and deserve more than others, 
The truth is, we are all, each of us, equally damned without the mercy of the Lord. Eternal life is a gift. I have no cause to feel entitled. I only have cause to feel grateful. Yeah, I guess that's right, Rick agreed, heaving a heavy sigh. But it's just so difficult, Grandpa. I'm really struggling. For the first time since he found himself on the ship, Rick let down his defenses and opened up his heart. Carol and I aren't good together, Grandpa, he lamented. I don't respond well to her anymore. Every tiny injustice feels like it weighs a thousand pounds. Rick kept looking out at the sea, his eyes glazing over as his mind wallowed in recent events. A week ago, for example, I started cooking dinner after work, which I've had to do more and more over the last couple of years as Carol has basically thrown in the towel on preparing meals. Anyway, I thought I'd make some scrambled eggs and I started mixing them in a bowl. Carol sat at the kitchen table while I did this, never offering help. Just then, just before I dumped the eggs in the pan, she told me to be sure to put butter in the pan so the eggs wouldn't stick so much. I protested a bit, I suppose, and she said, Look, it makes the pans really difficult to clean if you don't use butter. If you want to clean the mess yourself, then go ahead and do whatever you want. That's what she said. And you know what? Rick asked more to himself than to his grandfather. I just went off on her. I'd had enough. Why is there always a problem with what I do? I demanded. Why can't you be grateful that I'm cooking dinner to begin with? Why can't you just be grateful? And of course, I wasn't grateful when I said it. I felt entitled to a well-cooked meal. And if I couldn't have that, then I was entitled to cook in any way I pleased. Rick's eyes started to water at the futility of the memory. She can't even ask me to use butter anymore, he sighed, his eyes filling with tears. We can't even talk about eggs. Rick shook his head pathetically. Jonah knows well the despair that grips you, Ricky. But the Lord is about to teach him the way to escape from despair. Part one of that lesson now has Jonah in his belly. Part two awaits him in Nineveh. Rick found himself with his grandfather on a hillside overlooking a vast valley plain. Behind him rose foothills that developed into a substantial mountain range a few miles in the distance. Below him spread a great city that rose up from the banks of a large river some 15 miles away and spread from there in all directions. The congested center area of the city, in and of itself, was at least 10 miles square and surrounded by a large wall, was filled with whitish homes and buildings that appeared to be stacked nearly on top of each other, they were so close. Narrow, winding roads cut paths through the whitewashed structures. A number of much larger buildings, governmental in nature, Rick surmised, broke the boxy monotony of lesser structures. In the center and toward the river rose a building many times larger than any other. Rick couldn't tell because of the distance, but the base of this immense building looked to be a squat pyramid that itself rose above the other buildings, forming a massive foundation for the magnificent temple-like structure that it rested upon. The city gradually decreased in density in all directions, but continued as far as Rick could see on his side of the river. The outer areas eventually melded into farms with homes and other buildings clustered here and there among the harvested fields. The fields nearer Rick lay dry and burnt under the scorching sun, but in the distance, near the river, the ground still danced with color. So this is Nineveh, Rick said matter-of-factly. Yes, the great city, his grandfather responded. The river beyond is the Tigris. We are about 230 miles north of present-day Baghdad, 550 miles northeast of Jerusalem. 
Look, his grandfather said, pointing to their right. Rick stepped forward to see beyond a boulder that was blocking his view. About twenty yards away stood a makeshift lean-to. A man was seeking shelter within it, mostly unsuccessfully, as there was little vegetation around them with which to fill the cracks between the sticks. A vine that grew up on the sides and stretched over the top of the booth was withered and dying. Jonah? Ricky asked. Yes. He climbed to this spot after preaching to the Ninevites, as he had been commanded to do. Forty days, he told them, and you will be destroyed unless you repent. He repeated this warning over the days and weeks that followed, the announced date of calamity marching ever nearer. Jonah liked delivering that message, Ricky, for he was eager for the Ninevites' destruction. The worse they and their prospects were, the happier it made him feel. He enjoyed his role as prophet. But to his surprise and chargon, the Ninevites repented and the Lord withdrew his sentence. Yesterday was the fortieth day from Jonah's initial warning. He has spent the last twenty-four hours demanding that the Lord follow through on his initial word and destroy the Ninevites. Jonah remains on the hillside to witness the hoped-for destruction. But the Lord doesn't destroy them. No, Ricky, he doesn't. And Jonah's story is about to end right here on this hill. With an angry Jonah baking under these sticks and the Lord waiting for an answer to a question. What question? Grandpa Carson smiled, a question that was intended as much for you and for me as for Jonah. What do you mean? The book of Jonah ends with a question, a question the Lord asks Jonah. But the scriptural record stops before Jonah answers. Jonah's answer is omitted because his answer is only important to Jonah. The question remains for us unanswered, as the Lord poses it to each reader anew. The Lord now asks this question to you, Ricky, and your answer today and in every moment hereafter will determine whether you will remain gripped by despair or find your way to joy. What's the question? Rick asked with more urgency. Should not I spare Nineveh? That's it? Rick wondered. I'm not seeing the profundity, Grandpa. What am I missing? You are missing Carol, my boy and four children whose pains you do not know. These words took Rick's breath away more fully than the scorching east wind that suddenly engulfed him. I want to show you something, Grandpa Carson said, walking over to pick up a small stick that lay a few feet from them. Having retrieved it, he returned to where Rick was standing and squatted to the earth. There is something about the Jonah story that you should know, he said, digging the stick deep enough through the sand to preserve the words despite the wind. After he had finished, he said, look at this. He had written the following. Number one, the Lord commands Jonah to preach against the wicked Ninevites. Number two, Jonah sins, not wanting Nineveh to be saved. Number three, Jonah repents and the Lord saves Jonah. A pattern is being shown. Number three, Nineveh repents and the Lord saves Nineveh. Number two, Jonah sins, not wanting Nineveh to be saved. Number one, the Lord asks Jonah a question. Should I not spare Nineveh? This, Ricky, is the story of Jonah. Do you notice anything about it? Yes, the elements of the story repeat themselves in reverse order. It's a chiasm, an ordering structure prevalent in Hebrew writing. Very good, Ricky, said his grandfather, obviously impressed. I didn't know about chiasms until I came here. 
he said, referring Rick's surmise to the hereafter and not specifically the hill above Nineveh. Then you know, Ricky, he continued, that chiastic writing differs from linear writings in this respect. Chiastic passages point inward to the center. The end of the chiastic story is not so much the end as an invitation to consider the center anew. With that in mind, let's think about the chiasm's closing element, the Lord's question, Should I not spare Nineveh? What do you notice in the center? Well, in both of the center elements, the Lord delivered salvation. First he saved Jonah, then he saved Nineveh. Exactly. The Lord saved Jonah and Nineveh alike, and on the same terms, repentance. So if Jonah's answer to the Lord's question is, No, the Ninevites, who you have saved, shouldn't be saved. Who then, by implication, must also not be saved? Jonah, Rick answered, almost in a whisper. His mind raced trying to put the pieces together. You're saying that if Jonah can't be happy at the thought of Nineveh's salvation, then he makes himself unworthy of salvation. Yes, or perhaps I would put it this way. Jonah is already unworthy of salvation, as is Nineveh. No one merits it. Salvation is an act of mercy. The Lord poses his question in terms of mercy for Nineveh, but mercy for Nineveh is no longer in question. The mercy that remains in question is the mercy for Jonah. The implication of the Lord's question is this. Mercy can be extended only to those who are willing to extend it themselves. The Lord's question to Jonah is the same one he posed in the parable of the unmerciful servant, whose debt the Lord, his master, has forgiven. Shouldest thou not have also had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee, the Lord asks? And his Lord was wroth, the Savior taught, and delivered him to the tormentors. So likewise, the Savior continued, shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Rick's shoulder slumped a little as he considered his marriage in light of what his grandfather was saying. It's no accident, Ricky that the very center statement of the book of Jonah, which appears in the middle of the center elements of the chiasm, with 24 verses preceding it and 23 verses following, reads, that they observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Jonah sits in that booth observing lying vanities. He has forgotten his own prior sin. He has forgotten the mercy extended to him by the mariners who tried to spare him even when they knew he was the cause of their troubles. He has forgotten the ultimate mercy of the Lord, who delivered him even though he didn't deserve it. And he is therefore blind to his own Ninevehness, and how he himself is Nineveh, failing to see mercifully his heart, mind, and eyes are lying to him. All he can see is that he is right, entitled, deserving, observing lying vanities. He is in danger of forsaking his own mercy. And feeling no personal mercy, he is locked in despair. Which leads me to this question, Ricky. Is there any way that you are forgetting your own sins? Any way that you are failing to remember mercies that Carol has showed you? Any way that you are forgetting the Lord? Any way that you have become blind to your own Ninevehness? Any way that you persist in feeling entitled? Your escape from despair lies in your answer to these questions. But how can it, Grandpa? 
Those questions only make me feel worse. That is exactly why they hold the key to joy. That doesn't make sense. In a different day and age, it would have, Ricky, but not in your day, when everyone is trying to find happiness without giving up their sins. But you and I know better. Wickedness never was happiness. King Benjamin's people became filled with joy only after they fell to the earth in fear for their sins, viewing themselves as less than the dust of the earth. The despair that gripped Alma the Younger was replaced by joy only after he was harrowed up by the memory of his many sins. The father of King Lamoni had it right when he prayed, I will give away all my sins to know thee, which required him to recognize what was sinful within him. And so I ask again, are there any ways that you are forgetting your own sins? Any ways that you are failing to remember mercies that Carol has shown you? Any ways that you are forgetting the Lord? Any ways that you have become blind to your own Ninevehness? Any ways that you persist in feeling entitled? Contrary to modern belief, there are no happier questions than these. Rick's mind was now far away in a memory. He was sitting in the driver's seat of his car, Carol next to him. They had been out on a date that night, more from a feeling of obligation than a desire to be together. Their conversations had been forced and awkward. They were now headed home, far earlier than on any date before they were married, in order to save on the babysitter bill. The penny-pinching reason for their early return, so common in their marriage, not at Rick. But on this night, he was anxious to get home himself, where rooms and walls would muffle the painful echo of their silence. There's something I need to say to you, Carol had said as they neared their home, to which Rick had thought, great, here we go again. I'm not very strong right now, Carol began. It isn't fair to you, I suppose, but you are going to have to supply the love and understanding and support in this relationship. I'm afraid that I can't do it right now. Rick pulled the car to a stop on the shoulder of the road. That isn't fair, Carol, he retorted, flashing her an angry look. You can't demand that of me. You can't just say that you're not strong enough to supply love right now. You can't do that. It's not right. I'm not feeling very strong either, to tell you the truth. Who's going to give me the support that I need? Hmm? I know it isn't fair, Rick, and I'm really sorry about it. Rick recalled the self-pitying look on her face, and he felt repulsed anew. Sorry? This is what you mean by sorry? That's no apology, Carol. And besides, you can't get what you're looking for the way you're trying to get it anyway. You don't discover love by demanding love from others. You discover it by learning to love others yourself. Unless you find a way to love, my love or anyone else's won't help you. You discover love by learning to love others. There's no other way. Truer words have never been spoken, Ricky, his grandfather interrupted, ripping Rick back from his memory. Too bad you didn't believe what you were saying. Huh? What do you mean? You told Carol that you don't discover love by demanding love from others. You discover it by learning to love others. And how right you were. But you didn't believe it even when you said it. Sure he did. I still believe it. Do you? Yes, absolutely. Then tell me. If you believe that your love of others does not depend on their love of you, why did you have a problem with Carol's request? Why did you get upset when she said that she was feeling weak and that you were going to have to be the primary source of love and support for a while? Well, because it isn't right, that's why. What isn't right? That one person, me, has to supply all the love, 
It isn't fair. I'm tired of it. Why can't she hold up her end? Do you need her to? Yes. Why? Why, Rick repeated incredulously. Why? Yes, why? Well, because, because we're married and we're supposed to be one, one flesh and one heart. Are you saying that she doesn't have to love me? That it's just tough luck and I have to deal with it? If so, I disagree completely. That isn't what marriage should be like. You're quite right, Ricky. That isn't what marriage should be like. But it's also clear from what you've just said that you don't believe what you told Carol. Your own love is contingent on hers. You say you are willing to be one, but only if she is. And if your love is contingent on hers, then why shouldn't hers be contingent on yours? But what are you saying then, Grandpa? That I should just smile and be happy? I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. I won't be taken advantage of by Carol or by anyone else. I saw what that was like watching you and Grandma. I won't have it that way. Grandpa Carson paused for a moment and looked up at the sky. A bead of sweat trickled down his brow, the first sign of stress that Rick had witnessed during their encounters. He shook his head slowly. I'm not sure that I can help you, Ricky, he said. I'm not sure I can help. Rick had fallen back into defensiveness, but this comment shook him free. What do you mean, Grandpa? Just what I said, my boy. I'm not sure I can help you. Perhaps another time, he said, standing tall and turning toward Rick. When you're ready. He tried to give Rick a smile. No, don't go. I'm not ready for you to go. I want to understand this. Please stay. I'm sorry for what I just said. I didn't mean it. Not really. Grandpa Carson looked deep into Rick's eyes. As Rick returned the look, he saw for the first time a profound sadness in those eyes, as if a lifetime's worth of tears had pooled up in a place deep within. What's wrong, Grandpa? I love you so much, Ricky. In the same measure, I love your Carol. It's almost more than I can bear to see you both suffer, at each other's hands. He broke off what he was saying and looked over the expanse of Nineveh. And your children too, Alan, Eric, Annika, and Lauren? Don't be fooled by their smiles and silence, Ricky. They know what's going on, Alan and Eric in particular. Rick felt as though he'd been kicked in the stomach. They've heard many of your arguments while pretending to sleep, perhaps as you heard things not intended for your ears when you stayed with me and Grandma. He cast Rick a knowing look. They have spent many tearful nights because of what they have heard, he continued. They're confused, Ricky, and worried. You have no idea the pain they feel. They hide it well because they love you so much. You know how eager they are to see you every night, he asked. Rick nodded absentmindedly. You think they are just happy to see you, and they are, to be sure, but there's more to it than that. They are trying to hold the family together, and they do that in part by holding you themselves. There is desperation as well as love in their arms and fingers. The memories of those eager hugs flooded Rick's mind, and he nearly doubled over in pain as he felt the long embraces anew. He could feel the fear in those clutches, just as his grandfather had said, Why didn't I notice it before? Every prayer Alan and Eric have offered up over the last year has centered around you, Carol, and the family, his grandfather continued. In fact, it is because of them and their prayers that I am here. Rick couldn't find a word to say. He thought of Alan, Eric, and Annika, and Lauren. They couldn't have really been hurt, could they? He'd hoped lamely out of his own desperation, please, Lord, don't let them be hurt. Perhaps you can learn something, 
from how they are dealing with that hurt, came his grandfather's voice. The desperate love they are showing for both you and Carol as a way of holding the family together can help you with your struggle if you will let it. How? Consider, Ricky, how your children are answering the Lord's question. Should I not spare Nineveh? Like the Phoenician mariners, they have done nothing wrong yet suffer for the wrong of others. And despite the fact that they have done nothing wrong, despite the fact that they have done nothing to deserve the pain they are feeling, they love you with all their hearts. They desperately pray for your happiness. They beg for the Lord's mercy on your behalf. Their love is not contingent on yours or Carol's. It does not fail in the face of difficulty. When you discover why that is, he continued, your love will no longer be contingent either, and you will experience a love that you have only fleetingly known, a love that endureth forever and faileth not, despite hardships and difficulties. When you discover that love, you will discover a carol that you haven't known either. Your answer to the Lord's question will then be the right one, and despair will give way to hope and joy. Grandpa Carson waited for a moment for some kind of response, but Rick stood silently in thought. Let me put it this way, Ricky. Your children are suffering terribly in your home, as you are, yet they are able to love those at whose hands they suffer while you are struggling to do so. Why the difference, do you suppose? What difference between you and your children would explain the difference in your abilities to love? Well, they're innocence, Grandpa. Rick said quickly, they don't know enough to know better. Is your way the better way, Ricky? His grandfather said in a large voice that seemed to overpower the wind. Are you the one who knows the truth here? If your children were more knowledgeable, would they then know better than to love those who mistreat them? Is that your answer? Is that the enlightenment your children need? Grandpa Carson's eyes flashed, and Rick cowered under their scrutiny and the force of his grandfather's voice and conviction. Perhaps it is you who no longer knows enough, Ricky. Perhaps it is you that needs the education, and who better to teach you than those who suffer because of you. Rick felt tears begin to well up inside of him, both because his grandfather was so clearly disappointed in him, and because he had so disappointed his children. He choked back the tears half successfully as his lids held the water from streaming down his cheeks. You said your children were mere innocents, said Grandpa Carson, his voice now back to its normal volume and cadence. With that statement, you came so close to understanding something profound, yet end up so far from it. He paused for a moment. I want to ask you a question, Ricky. Who in the scriptures comes to mind as someone who was able to love others even though he was despised and abused by them? The Savior, of course. Have you ever wondered how he was able to do this? Well, yes, but I don't think that we can begin to fathom the reasons he is the Son of God after all. So it was his pedigree then. It was because of his genes that he was able to love those who caused him to suffer. Is that it? Well, no, not exactly. No, it wouldn't seem so, would it, as he commands us, no matter who our fathers and mothers may be, to love just as he was able to do, those who despitefully use us and persecute us. And if he commands us to love in just that way, then it's pretty important that we understand why he was able to do so himself, wouldn't you say? Yes, Rick answered soberly. 
Well, let's think about it then. When you think about the Savior and what he did for us, what strikes you as particularly remarkable about him? Everything, Rick said quite honestly. Let's get specific. Okay, well, he suffered for all our sins, as we talked about with Abigail and David. Yes, good, what else? He loves all mankind, saint and sinner alike. Yes, that's right, excellent, and what else? Maybe the most amazing thing of all is that he never did anything wrong. Exactly, Ricky. He never sinned toward anyone, including those who caused him to suffer. He never sinned at all. Grandpa Carson dipped his head down to intercept Rick's gaze. Now, he said, having secured his attention, do you notice anything similar about your children? Rick pondered for a moment. Yes, they also love those who are causing them to suffer, he lamented, his ache returning. Yes, they do. Anything else? Like Christ, they are not doing wrong toward me or Carol, either. Is that what you want me to say? Ricky, what you say is only marginally important to me. What I care most about is how you feel about what you say. But let's first deal with your words. Remember how you said that your children were mere innocents? Rick nodded. This is what I meant by you being close to a crucial understanding and yet so far away. The important difference between you and your children is not that your children are in a sense, but that they are innocent. That is, they are not doing wrong toward those who are creating difficulties for them. What difference would that make? What difference indeed, his grandfather answered ponderously. Rick hesitated. I don't understand, Grandpa. Why would that be the critical difference? And if it is, how could I ever hope for things to be better than they are? I'm not perfect, you know, and I'm not likely to be. Your children aren't perfect either, Ricky, but such love is nevertheless found in them. Then that cuts against what you just said. They're imperfect, so they're not innocent either. We're not different in that respect at all. Ah, now we're to the point, his grandfather said almost to himself. Think of Jonah over there, he said, gesturing beyond the rock. Rick turned to look at the limp figure under the sticks. There he sat, still slumped under the heat of the sun. He is a bitter man at the moment. He thinks that he is in the right here. In fact, he's so convinced of it, he's willing to face off against the Lord. His is the cause of justice. Meanwhile, the Lord's question hangs in the air. Should I not spare Nineveh? What do you suppose would happen, Ricky, if Jonah were to give up his belligerence and answer, both in word and feeling, yes? Do you suppose he would sit in that same way under those sticks? Do you suppose his countenance would remain sour? Do you suppose that he would continue to curse at the sun? Do you suppose that he would feel the way he currently does about Nineveh? No, probably not, Rick answered. His world would change, wouldn't it? Not because the world would be perfect, but because he would recognize in that moment that he has no claim to perfection in others, that his and others' hopes rest entirely on mercy, that he is entitled to nothing and grateful for everything. In that moment, he wouldn't become perfect. He would become innocent. Innocent because he would have allowed the Lord's offered mercy to well up inside of and change him into a new man, free from the clutches of sin. Grandpa turned back to Rick. Notice something, Ricky. Jonah sits on this hill, believing that the world will improve for the better if only there is some drastic change in Nineveh. 
David felt the same way about Nabal. That is why he started marching to Camel to inflict that drastic change. But David discovered through Abigail that the change meant everything was not a change in Nabal, but a change in himself, a change that is invited by the Lord's question. The Lord is now offering Jonah that same discovery. The drastic changes we just imagined in Jonah don't depend on Nineveh at all. Jonah is unhappy for one reason and one reason alone, and it is not because of the reason he thinks. Like David, he is unhappy not because of another's sins, but because of his own. This understanding is available merely from pondering the Savior's atonement, for no amount of mistreatment and suffering was able to take away the love of one who was without sin. By contrast, we who still struggle with sinfulness struggle as well to cover our sins. And one way we do this, the Savior taught, is by finding sinfulness in others. The beams in our eyes get us looking for the motes in others. Our own failure to love another causes us to see the other as being unworthy of love. So we end up sitting beneath our own canopies of sticks, irritated, angry, hurt, blaming our lack of love on the Ninevites. We are failing to love. The Savior, by contrast, with no sins of his own to clutch, cover, and excuse, remained free to see all mankind, each of us, Ninevite, in our sinfulness and in the pain we caused him, mercifully and gratefully. Your children answer yes to the Lord's question, Ricky. They grant mercy to the Ninevites in their home by throwing their arms around Nineveh every night. The secret of their love is not naivete, but the fact that they are, as you said, mere innocence but rather their innocence from sin. Innocent as they are from sinfulness towards you, there are no sins they need to cover or excuse, and therefore no sins of yours can keep them from loving you. The question for you is what sins toward Carol keep you from loving her? How are you demanding justice and therefore denying mercy? In what ways are you sitting belligerently under the sticks of your own grudges? How are you the author of your own despair? If you allow yourself to discover answers to those questions, you with your children will answer yes to the Lord's question and rediscover a carol who is much less like Nineveh than you think she is, a carol whom your children love every bit as much as they love you. His grandfather wiped his brow and looked eastward toward the mountains. It's time for me to go, Ricky. I leave you now with Jonah and with his question. The city before you, as wicked as Jonah thinks it is, is saved. Will you be? Will he? That will depend entirely upon how you and he see the other Ninevites in your life. I have faith in you, son, he added after a brief pause. You know the right. You'll find the way I know you will. Thanks, Grandpa. I hope you're right. I'm not so sure. His grandfather took Rick in his arms in a warm embrace, the way he used to when Rick was about to go back home after a summer on the farm. Goodbye, son. Goodbye, Grandpa. Will I see you again? Perhaps. I hope so. Rick bit his lip to keep the tears at bay. Grandpa Carson smiled, nodded his head, and said, As much as I'd like that, my greatest hope is that you will see Carol again, as you used to, as the Lord sees her as she is. With that, his grandfather set off for the mountains. He paused at the top of the next hill to the east and called, Remember the Lord's question, Ricky, and remember that no one is more Ninevite than you are. And then he was gone. Rick was alone with Jonah on the hillside. 
the sun beating mercilessly upon their heads. And with that, I leave you with a question. Who are the Ninevites in your life? And how will you answer the Lord's question, Should I not spare Nineveh? And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.